Hannah and I will be talking about degenerative disc disease today. 50% of everyone over 50 has degenerative disc disease of some type. So when people talk about how do I avoid one, how do I avoid surgery? Look, how do I avoid you entering the surgical cascade of maybe, likely, depending on your lifespan, two to three. We've taken a degenerative disc or some leg and hip pain that we've turned into five back surgeries down the road with no muscle mass to support you. That's the patient we get stuck. Inflammation is sticky and it's avascular and it's destructive and it's very difficult for your body to get it to go away and, and, and wash that out. So we help it. Welcome to the Zero Downside Podcast with Dr. Wade McKenna, sponsored by MoabTexas.com. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Zero Downside, where we discuss pretty much all of the downsides there are to traditional medicine versus biologics therapies. I have Dr. Wade McKenna, who's an orthopedic trained trauma surgeon and also developed a way to pull adult stem cells out of bone marrow. So he has two of the greatest brains, I think, in medicine. And today we are going to be discussing degenerative disc disease. So if this is something that you're struggling with, um, we're going to be going through what causes it, what you can do, what the traditional forms of treatment are, and pretty much everything you can do to avoid in a whole body wellness standpoint. So I'm going to kick it off to Mike, who's also here with us. And I think Dr. McKenna is also going to share a little bit of his weekend before or his week before we kick off the episode. Hey guys, as always, thank you so much for watching. Please remember to like and subscribe. We are talking about degenerative, excuse me, degenerative disease. Well, Mike isn't, Mike isn't actually talking Ooh. about degenerative <laughs> disc disease. Apparently, apparently, He's talking about yeah. something remarkably different. Yes. Da, 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 da. So, but, but uh, yeah, we're, hey. our, our intent, Hannah and I, will be talking about degenerative disc disease today. Man, the alliteration. Mike is going to be talking Get about right. something completely different. I know, like. man. It is. <laughs> Hannah sets the bar high, and I make sure to just take that average and lower it. Just Hannah's alliteration is always on point. Right? It is. And we're. Because she takes so much time. Yes. Like my brain is moving about five times faster than my mouth. And when my mouth tries to catch up is when I stumble some. Um, but I totally have time, more to lose, though. I have to be perfect <laughs> because I don't have a medical degree. So if anybody's going to get blasted, it's going to be uh, me. So well, I, I, I think be, you, you said something really, really poignant, though, with the way you described degenerative disc disease. You said the problems wow. with degenerative disc disease. And I think that that's really poignant because it's not uncommon that we will get someone in the clinic that is only there <laughs> because they have a report that says, they have degenerative disc disease and they're really, really worried about it and they have no real back pain. Now, first of all, the question is, why'd you get the MRI? Because I think that, you know, when someone says that everyone that has an MRI that says degenerative back pain on it and doesn't have back pain doesn't need treatment, I, I um, really? Then what, what caused them to spend the money to get the MRI, right? I mean, yeah. something was going on that made them get an MRI of their back. Now, it may not be pain enough to talk about surgery, hopefully. Um, but for the most part, they have an MRI. You don't just randomly get an MRI. Hey, I think I want an MRI on my back today, right? So I don't think we ever just tell someone to ignore something they see on MRI because they got an MRI for a reason. Mm -hmm. Like something provoked that exam, especially mm -hmm. in today's overmanaged versions of healthcare, right? Like you have to meet some significant standards. You to even qualify for an MRI depending on what your insurance is. 
So I think that when you see a lot of different podcasts out there talk about ignoring degenerative disc disease, no, right? Use degenerative disc disease on MRI, especially if you had enough pain to get the MRI. It's kind of the first shot across the bow to see what your conservative ways of stemming the tide are. Like, how do you win that battle before it becomes a surgical problem, mm -hmm. I think it is really important. So I like the way she said that of, the, you know, it's, it's really the potential of degenerative disease to become a problem. Mm -hmm. That is what we're trying to stem the tide on, right? So I like the way she said it. She Not that I don't really right. enjoy the way Mike said it. No. I just I like to add a little bit of spice. But Mike hey, is the flavor. Before, absolutely. And it's a little stale this morning. Which, which hey. no one would look at Mike and think he's the flavor of the trio for sure. Oh, right? I mean, you cannot hurts. be more all-American, especially if you know it. You, are you talk are you, about are you calling me, uh, Boy Scout. What was like, Beaver's uh, brother, Wally, and my Wally? No, you, 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 no, you are. <laughs> you, you're not Wally's friend. <laughs> Lord, no. Eddie Haskell, no. You're I'm not, not Eddie, Eddie Haskell. Haskell. No, no you, you're, my, you're my Jiminy Cricket. Uh, that's right? true. Like, that's true. You're, that, you're, you're, my, you're my, most of the time, Mike is my voice of reason. Now, I have seen him get a bit riled up because he does have that red hair that apparently I'm a big fan of in my life. Yeah. Um, with, you know, daughters and, 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 you know, girlfriends and staff and business managers and marketing people <laughs> and my front desk now. Like, I, they keep talking about how redheads are being bred out. Yeah. I'm not if you look at my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, my life is ruled by a lot of redheads. You always have the claim to fame of, of leading the, the band of misfit toys. And oh, so for what sure. is more misfit oh, this is than my a bunch season, of redheads, right? right? No, this is my yes. season, too, because <laughs> nice. that is the movie, you know, and, and before this, you know, white quaff that I'm stuck quaff. with, with God. Um, I had very red hair, and in high school, I grew a really short beard, and it was really red. And around Christmas time, there's a movie called Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It comes out. It's very, it's a very classic animation kind of claymation kind of movie. And they have the young Kris Kringle, and he has a cut beard. And that is the movie where the Island of Misfit Toys comes from. Right? I did not know this. Very, very big fan of this. So around Christmas time every year, I get my Island of Misfit Toys reinforced, and I love it because the, every for every misfit toy banished to the island of misfit toys, there's a kid that needed them, right? And so I, I and that movie where he had the short red beard, I don't say it looked like me, but a girl in my high school who her name was Chris Crystal, um, which you know, I there it's weird how random names will come, but she was just a very sweet, very sweet person. Um, real like white blonde hair, mm -hmm. very pretty girl. And she started calling me Chris Kringle because I would call her KK for Chris Crystal. And so she said, okay, KK, so you're K And I'm like, what? She goes, you're Chris Kringle. You're Chris Kringle now. And because of the red beard thing. And so, and, and I only grew the beard to prove I could because in high school we couldn't until the, until, until the point in my junior year where they allowed face hair but only after football season, hmm. right? So the coach didn't allow face hair, but the school did. And so it was very specific on when my beard growth would start. Uh, but anyway, that's the, that's the, like tis the season, Chris, right? Thank you, Chris because, Kringle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is the season, though, for, because of the Island of Misfit Toys reference it, it, and, and that movie, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, very much. 
School and football. Let, yeah. Let's talk yeah. school and football. What could possibly oh, have I a good know. segue uh, into school and football? Pokes. Pokes with the purpose is the NIL fund um, for Oklahoma State that because of the NIL fund in Oklahoma State, I, I think, and because it's such a – what Gundy has done there with the culture of this team, um, and for us to have a 10-win season with some of the huge ups and downs we had this season, especially after the first few games when there was a lot of people talking about. First of all, we were picked a, the over-under in Vegas for us to win games for the season was six, right? So when we were all there this summer for a big meeting, someone may have been able to, to take Oklahoma State over those six wins. And so I've been celebrating for quite a long time. Well, yeah, Vegas doesn't uh, normally miss by that. Much. They don't usually <laughs> miss by four games. Yeah. Um, but I was pretty sure. Now, was there a point early in the season <laughs> where I might have just kind of written off some of that? I, for sure. But I feel very blessed uh, to be part of uh, OSU culture, to be involved peripherally in taking care of some of our uh, athletes and to have such a close relationship with some of the kids on that field that I genuinely just, as a man who has no sons, but who has three daughters, um, I feel very blessed uh, to be able to kind of ancillarily kind of adopt um, some of those some of those kids on the field. So the my pokes with the purpose cup is filled with my coffee. And everyone that knows me knows I have a hot and a cold drink. So my cold drink is my Oklahoma State giant one. Um, but the hot drink is, is my pokes with the purpose. So I want to make sure we give a little bit of a shout out yeah. because Oklahoma State, and everyone keeps talking about how a almost came back. They were never closer than eight points to us. And we were 18 ahead at one point. So while we did make it a little more interesting than I would have liked <laughs> near the end, well. um, in my mind, the game was never in doubt because they never really stopped our offense. Mm. Um, and... You know, while Gundy never says anything about officiating, I will tell you, I don't think they called a holding penalty on A&M all night, and we never got a sack on the quarterback, which we had to deal with the running quarterback that that wasn't their pregame, right? They lost their quarterback on the first play of the game. And I know a every A&M fan is going to be whining about that. But you guys have the number four rated prospect coming out of high school that was your backup quarterback. Yeah. And, and the kid was phenomenal. And we weren't ready for a running quarterback. We did not. That was we didn't game plan for that because their starter wasn't, and so we had to on the fly. But to never call a holding penalty when we never got a sack, and our line has been lights out this year, and yeah. we brought plenty of good pressure. There may have been a lot of uncalled just muggings at the line of scrimmage. So I'm going to go public with that 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 this game could have been. I mean, they could they could have pulled them back a lot. And it felt like it felt very much like if I'm gonna make the best Homer statement ever, it felt like any real important penalty went one direction. Look, after and, a three week break, what at least three weeks where they haven't well, we touched haven't the, ball. the ball? Yeah. No, yeah. not even that. Like these kids haven't been on the field. You're telling me there wasn't one holding penalty. No, one, these no, kids have gone. And there through. are a lot of times these kids are like being pulled backwards, right? Yes. Like come on. And the officials right? were also resting. Yeah. Entire, well, so that, that, the Big Ten, right? Which <laughs> the Big Ten and the Big Twelve are jockeying between one and two on who has the most bowl game wins. The SEC is not involved in that jockeying back and forth on bowl game win percentages, by the way. 
just saying. Um, little, but, an, little anecdotal but, data. Yeah, a little anecdotal data. So <laughs> it was Big Ten referees who might have had an interest in maybe not letting the Big 12 show up. But That's fair. But, but, but overall, I'm very prolific. I had, I had a really, I've had a really great Christmas. And it's amazing how much of my Christmas could have been determined by the success of a bunch of 19 to 20-year-old boys on, on a football field. But yay, yay. Stay Man, you, tuned you bleed for orange. the spinoff of... Dr. McKenna and Mike's halftime. Yeah, so hey, I'll tell you right now. I think that uh, we're already going to work on a. Uh, we're going to work on an NIL, NIL deal. Uh, I want to bring some of these kids in and kind of support the NIL program. We did it with when we had Preston Wilson on, um, and brought up the NIL stuff uh, because Preston's number seventy four, um, and I have that number seventy four jersey in my house. Um, uh, so we have. Um, you know, we, we brought up the NIL deal then with Pokes with the Purpose at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and it turned into a much bigger deal. Like that was the summer and that just really started as a program. And they've done they've done really well. And so I want to make sure that we actually maybe find a way to yeah. to bring that into our program at some point. Well, and it's these programs are still in their infancy, you know, and I, I think for you to to lead your voice and and support for it is a big deal. And I think that's really I think that helpful. anything that helps get look, I can't imagine what what fifty thousand dollars which I think every letterman athlete at Oklahoma State last year, um, every athlete in every sport that school sponsored, I think it was like fifty grand or more. Yeah, that NIL gave them, and I'll tell you right now, like you kids looking at going to the next level and maybe leaving school early. Let me tell you how big your nut gets at ten to twelve grand a month. How fast? And in Stillwater, spending fifty grand a year is hard. Yeah, like you you can live like a king for fifty grand a year in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So I don't know that your lifestyle changes that much for the better, because in an NFL city. It's not like everyone there knows who you are. There's a lot of people who don't follow sport. Yeah. There's no one in Stillwater, Oklahoma that doesn't follow football. So God bless Ollie Gordon coming back. Um, all the offensive line looks like they're coming back. Hopefully there's some more announcements coming out on that pretty soon. Um, but I'm thrilled, obviously. So we can get on to degenerative yes. disc disease, mainly <laughs> yes. because I'll tell you right now, as someone who was on the line of scrimmage for a really long time and five back surgeries later, Degenerative disc disease is a problem associated with all these kids because their body weight is so big, their muscle mass is so much, and they're pushing against someone their body weight, especially on the line of scrimmage, where you're making physical contact with someone every play of a game. Yeah. And all those kids, the, the chances of that lumbar spine or cervical spine making it through till they're in their 50s without some form of degenerative disc disease is about zero because... 50% of everyone over 50 has degenerative disc disease of some time. Pretty much, like, it goes up dramatically after that. But, but after about 20, 30 years old, there's going to be some of those discs that start to dry out, and they start looking a little black on MRI. And they, it calls, we call it desiccation of the disc, which means drying out. The, a lot of radiologists, and I hate, hate, hate the use of the term arthritis, when you're discussing an MRI because, because it's a very junk term. It just means where, and you should be able to tell me where it is and what stage it is and, 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 and how much cartilage is there and what, so I hate the term just general, Oh, they have arthritis. Or, oh, they have degenerative disease. Hate is a light term for how really, you respond. Really? You... I think, I think, I think, um, Ooh. woefully disdain 
maybe a more politically correct way of saying it, maybe, but it really bothers me at the laziness of people that had an opportunity to participate at a higher level in the care of someone that had that took their time to go get an MRI and to just describe something in such a general term that it means nothing. The term degenerative disc disease in and of itself means nothing. It doesn't mean that that's the source of your pain. Mm-hmm. It just means it's part of the aging process. Right? Yeah, describing arthritis in someone's back, especially over 50 years old, is like saying there's a slight chance of rain in London. Oh, right. For it's, sure. it's, it, there's right. always a slight chance of yeah. rain in London. Uh, there's always going to be it's arthritis like in the, the back. It's, it's, like predicting, it's like predicting a light shower around 4 o'clock in San Diego. Exactly. Right? So, and so let, let's talk a little bit further about this. Is this disc degeneration, is it a, and you're proud of me because I nailed it that time, uh, exactly. um, but we with left that. Out the term. I know. He See? did take a shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say the full DDD. So is it a genetic issue? Is it a wear and tear issue? Is it a body mass issue? So what, what the is answer the answer to all those cause? questions is yes. Yeah. So it's right? undeniable so, so, going to happen. Uh, undeniable. If you've had an, any form of an active life, and maybe even more so if you've led a really inactive life, um, because you need activity to maintain bone mass. And bone mass is structurally really, really important. Let, let's, we got to make sure that we talk about when we talk, because we've already spent so much time and we haven't even really brushed the subject. And I'm, and I'm sorry for that. Not really. <laughs> but I know so poor sincere. Hannah. But Hannah is so, like she has, she, she's done such a good job and she always is so focused on making sure that we address the questions that may help us get watched by someone. Um, more than just the entertainment of me talking to my friends, which you might not believe, but we don't get a lot of time to do this. Yeah. No. So when we show up for the podcast, there's a lot of the producer saying, hey, we're ready to start. Right. Anyway, degenerative disc disease is an eventuality for everybody because the lumbar spine is under and, and cervical spine is under so much stress. Right. And it's really a, only meant to handle limited axial loads. It's the muscle and soft tissue support that is way, way, way more functional, important, functionally important. I pulled a mic. Oh, we can call it pulling a mic. Oh, that's gone. <laughs> Today will be my last the, episode. Today. <laughs> <laughs> we can call it I pulled a mic. Um, <sighs> very happy when we come up with moments like that. So is there anything else other than just aging and high activity that puts somebody at a higher risk of developing this yeah, sooner? I, I think obesity for sure. I think being chemically imbalanced for sure. I think insulin, um, metabolism for sure. I think, um, certainly, uh, whatever you did look, when someone says to me, like I had five lumbar spine surgeries and I think we all know that that's kind of the pathway of how I got to the stem cell part of this is, there had to be something to help aid in healing because I didn't heal very well through those. No. I had about every complication of a surgery you can have. And I was, and it's not like I didn't have a really skilled surgeon taking care of me, but I, but I did get left with a, a significant paravertebral muscle atrophy, complete destruction at, at more than one level in my lumbar spine, and have been able to navigate the waters even through five surgeries with no hardware and no big fusions. Um, because I worked really hard to avoid the things that I knew were just whittling. And by that, I mean, you're just going to continue. It's, it's what we refer to in the clinic as the cascade of surgery, right? Everyone talks about, and, and a lot of the videos on the, on the internet talk about degenerative disc disease and it's the hereditary causes or the, 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 
overweight or the muscle mass volume or 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 paresthesias and muscle a lot of those videos what they fail to to really talk about is how multifactorial it is and how that once you start from a surgical perspective mm-hmm. one surgery leads to another that leads to another that leads to another that leads to another and it's not me saying that it is the literature says that the 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 lumbar laminectomy everyone says oh i just make a keyhole lumbar laminectomy and i just pull part of the disc out yeah okay but what do you do to make the disc kill after that because it's not gonna you create a surgical scar that may if the person's young enough look if you extrude a big free fragment you have acute radiculopathy and weakness in the leg i until a few years ago i was still cutting on those because i thought it was crucially important i get the disc mm-hmm. pressure off of that nerve root there's great study published now and more than one that even with an extruded free fragment right which is the biggest disc hernia you can have you extrude this whole piece of the nucleus pulposa and i think everyone that's ever talked about degenerative disc has heard the annulus is the dry outer part and it's fibrous and the inner parts this like jelly donut and the jelly donut is these inflammatory proteins and when they break through the outer shell it causes pain well, that break through the outer shell is what we will refer to as an annular tear. And the reason that degenerative disc disease in and of itself may not be associated with any pain is because it just means the aging, the, the, the drying out, or the medical term for that is desiccation, mm-hmm. right? As it dries out and gets a little bit stiffer, you may not have as much mobility, but it doesn't mean it's painful. What's painful is a tear in that outer annulus that generates an inflammatory response that now that nerve, so really what the lumbar spine and cervical spine is about is protecting the cord and nerve roots behind it. It's your structural support, but so is the musculoskeletal system. The skeleton's one part of that. And the muscle mass occupies a lot more of your body weight Mm -hmm. and a lot more of your ability to sustain stress than the bony articular surface only. I mean, there's some good studies that show that if you just take the lumbar spine in and of itself, it only could stand about 35 pounds of axial pressure. I don't know a lot of 35-pound adults. And so if the lumbar spine in and of itself can only withstand 35 pounds of axial stress, what helps it withstand 220 pounds of axial stress? Muscle mass, core, right? So a lot of times the way to help avoid some of the degenerative, the the complications of degenerative disc disease. I don't think you can avoid degenerative disc disease on an MRI. I do think that finding on an MRI, I do think you can, you can help starve off or stave off or push back the hands of time a little bit when it comes to maintaining core and flexibility, overall health, controlling your body weight, controlling your activity level, controlling hormone function to maintain your bone density. Those things help starve off back pain a little bit. Now, if we're going to talk about how to do that, surgery, that first keyhole that'll pull the disc out, if that doesn't solve degenerative disc disease, that's not a treatment for degenerative disc disease. That's a treatment for pressure on a nerve root. So when people are talking about surgery for degenerative disc disease, hmm, first of all, remember, we're not even, we don't even know that the de- degenerative disc disease, I pulled a mic, sure. is actually the cause of your pain, right? Yeah. <clears throat> And excuse me, for the most part, in the cervical spine, degenerative disc disease in and of itself isn't even the real cause of your pain. It's the facets on the side. In the lumbar spine, 
the degenerative disc disease without neuroforaminal encroachment on the nerve or without an annular tear causing the inflammatory response is just a normal part of aging. And so I think that that term degenerative disc disease and then the talking about surgical treatment of degenerative disc disease, do I think that there are times when a herniated disc, especially a free fragment, which I would have said needed fixed, but that study showed that in patients at two years out that didn't have surgery for an extruded free fragment, they were doing just as well or better than the patients that had surgery. So they had a loose body, essentially, in Basically, terms. a giant disc herniation so so big that it looked like pieces had liberated from the disc. Right. Like the, 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 the nucleus pulposa, this jelly donut people talk about, it's not jelly. It's about the consistency of crab, right? So it's rubbery. And so when you push that out around the nerve root, it occupies volume and space. That nerve needed the volume and space. And so when it gets pushed on, it hurts. But... Just the pressure has to be generating an inflammatory response. The cytokine, the peptides, the proteins mm -hmm. within that nucleus, within that annulus that are mobilized as your body attempts to try to heal that is what causes a lot of the pain, the inflammatory response, right? Just failure of the disc, not pushing the nerve. Look, what we discussed all the time is when talking about neuroframing and this little, you have this little hole where the nerve comes out and any pressure on that hole. God didn't do it that way. That hole is slotted, right? So when you herniate some disc out, that nerve can kind of go up or down a little bit in that slot. Does it even make sense if you were, and let's say, and, we, and I said God again, because I'm going to say we're going to, I think this is a very divinely created device that we mobilize ourselves around the world in, right? Yeah. And so for me, you can talk about however you think it happened. But for me, it's easier to say, God did it. And if I was God and I was going to design a, a lumbar spine, I would give you some increased tolerances for degenerative changes that I know are inevitable as you get older, right? So I think that if nature did it, okay, whatever, uh, maybe, right? Um, but I think that the body has some tolerances to tolerate the acute changes that happen with injuries and some of the accelerations with injuries and aging. I do think as people get older, everyone ends up with some degenerative disc disease. Now, I do think that the best way to prevent degenerative disc disease from becoming back pain, because I do think if you look statistically, eventually a large segment of the population is going to have some back pain. Yeah. It is kind of inevitable if you worked hard, if you've not necessarily been great at maintaining your core, or if you've been just really overactive and had some injuries as a kid, eventually you can't hide from the marks left on you by your activity, right? Everything you did left a mark. But that surgical cascade, that taking the disc out, that taking the pressure off the nerve results not in a cure for the degenerative disc. It takes pressure off the nerve. It may, train, it may take care of the paresthesia, the leg pain you were having, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a disc at 3-4, your quad... Is, is sore, it hurts. If you have a disc at four or five, it's usually your hip. A lot of people that have a four or five disc don't come in the office and say, my back hurts and I have a four or five disc. Hip pain. They come in and say, my complaint. hip is killing me, Yeah. right? And then it turns into my lateral calf gets numb. Um, with five one, it can be rampant leg pain all the way down to your heel. Yeah, that's radiculopathy. Um, radiculopathy is, is the term for radiculi, the nerve, opathy, pathology, so, and, and I think the term ridiculous comes there too, because the pain you can have is absolutely absurd. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, pressure on a nerve root, the amount of pain you can, you can ha have 
with an extruded fragment, which I went through to the point where I had foot drop, which is acute loss of neurogenic function. I couldn't lift my foot, had surgery. That's still what I think happens when you have that problem. If you have neurogenic weakness that's mediated neurologically by the pressure on a nerve root, I think those patients end up in the OR. Well, let's, let's take but this But I think the best way to help prevent that patient's <clears throat> radiculopathy cure being the removal of that annular pressure or the disc pushing on the nerve root, I think the best way to keep that from turning to a fusion is to help do something at the time that makes that disc heal. So an intermediate step. Yeah. So let, let's go back really quick. We talked five surgeries for you. We've talked about the importance of core and musculature in, in the back itself. One of the most profound conversations you and I ever had, you called me into a patient room. It was late at night after clinic. And you said, hey, come look at this. And you pulled up an MRI of a back. And you didn't tell me who it was. Um, the name was blocked out. And I looked at it. And quite literally, just for anybody listening or, or watching, one side of the screen looked like prime steak. And the other side looked like Aldi choice, <laughs> right? And no. not a knock on Aldi by any means, but it looked remarkably asymmetrical. Yeah, we talk, and, we talk about um, like uh, filet mignon yes. or prime rib. Yes, right? that's so a good analogy. backstrap, which if you're a hunter, and this is Texas, um, backstrap is the leanest part, right? That's what, that's, that's the, that's what you want when, you, when they skin animals. I've never shot a deer, by the way. I have three daughters. Not that I have a problem with. Um, I've eaten it. <laughs> Sounds like we have a trip coming up. Yeah, I'm a fan. Um, but backstrap is one of the key stabilizers. And radiologists never even talk about it. When you look at an MRI, that's another thing that really bothers me. The back multifidi muscle, right? So that's this one segment little muscle that's on each side of your spine. It's between the facet joint and the spinous process. The two muscles of the multifidi occupy way more of the film on your MRI. When you're looking at that one, one mm -hmm. side, it occupies two to one the amount of volume of the canal or that disc. So what And all they care about is the canal and the disc, right. not giving, mm -hmm. they don't even talk about pelvic floor musculature, the anterior muscles, the iliopsoas. You can see all these muscles that are supposed to help stabilize the lumbar spine just go away especially after surgery, because the key for, that's the reason they talk that's about the keyhole it. surgery to remove the disc. Nope. Well, that still doesn't cure the degenerative disc disease. It causes furtheration and worsening of the degenerative disc disease. And as that disc starts to settle and collapse on itself, you can get recurrent radicular symptoms because now that slot we talked about isn't a slot. As that disc space collapses over time, partially accelerated by the herniation, the disc failure, and the surgery. As that disc starts to collapse, then you get acceleration of the radiculopathy, more, more leg and hip pain. Then you start having the back pain. You may not have had any back pain before your disc hernia and all the leg and hip pain that you had. You may not have had any neck pain before your arms started going numb and weak. But the herniation, not the degenerative disc disease. Degenerative disc disease would cause back pain, an annular tear as a symptom, a treatable symptom, a needed treatable. And I even heard someone, one of the other podcasts talking about how you can still see an annular tear on MRI that's that even after it heals. That, that mm, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a fact for sure, because I think as an, an annular tear, what we're looking at with an MRI is you're looking at fluid. You're able to see the inflammatory load. There is a difference in the heterogeneity 
meaning the signal on an MRI, homogeneity, everything looks the same. Heterogeneity, there's some differences. The heterogenic high-intense signal, and we used to call it a Heise lesion for high-intense signal, right? So a high-intense signal, that zone of annular tear in the, in the disc is an inflammatory response. And actually, one of the substances in that, one of the proteins is literally called substance P. That's what P stands for, right? Pain. So when you look at the inflammatory load, it's fluid. It's a high-intensity signal. That annular tear may not be the source of all your back pain, for sure. But is it a really good picture of where to maybe focus the highest probability of what's causing that patient's change in their pain levels more than they have three degenerative discs and we just need to treat them all? No, if they have three degenerative discs and one of them has a big annular tear, what used to have to happen and the medicine has gotten away from it because it would have limited the amount of fusions that were done if you still had to do this test to get a fusion passed, mm -hmm. would be a discogram. And what you would do is you put dye into the disc, you put a needle directly into the disc, and you put a little dye into the disc. And if the dye, there's three things that made a positive discogram because you were diagnosing the tear of the nucleus pulposa and eventual annular tear, the secretion of nuclear inflammatory proteins into the annulus. The middle part of the annulus doesn't have a nerve. The, uh, the nucleus fibrosis doesn't really have nerves. But the outer third of the annulus is crucially important in proprioception, being able to load and unload, flexibility, maintaining the health of that disc. So when you tear into that, that would make sense that that's what would cause your pain, right? And that tear, because it doesn't heal very well and stays chronically inflamed, and oh, by the way, that tear is right where the nerve exits, now that nerve has to cross the lake of fire. Well, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to hurt because yeah. it's going to be inflamed, right? Now, when the fluid of the annular tear is inflamed and you put dye into the disc, you see a disrupted pattern. So normally, this is where the jelly donut term came from. When you did, it, when you did a discogram, you stuck the needle in the middle of the annulus and you filled it up. It was just this little teardrop of dye in the middle of the disc. Look like you were putting jelly in the middle of a jelly donut. But when the, when the disc is disrupted, it leaks. So you have, a disc you, have, you have a disrupted pattern, positive sign number one. You can have a leak, positive sign number two. More importantly, you had concordant pain, meaning when we injected that disc at the time of your discogram, which I did a ton of those as a resident, and, and we do a ton now, but I learned how to do that procedure as a resident because that used to be crucial. I'm old. You had to do a discogram, and it had to be positive before you would ever do a fusion on patient. So when you did the discogram, it's not uncommon, and we see it every week mm -hmm. when we do these procedures in, in, in our OR, is when you inject that disc, if, if that annular tear is not associated with the pain, people just don't even move. When you inject a painful disc or where the disrupted pattern and the annular tear is clinically important, it causes the exact same kind of pain that they have when they're having a bad day. And so when you go to inject that disc, you're like, Ugh. And people are like, is that your kind of pain? Yes. Put them back to sleep, right? Because I've just diagnosed a problem. We have CRM in there. I get the needle in the disc. We show that it leaks. They have concordant pain. They have a disruptive pattern. We just prove more than not that that's a, it may not be the only source, 
But it's certainly one of the more important sources of that patient's pain and discomfort is the disc failure, the annular failure, the annular tear, the disc disruption that has made it look like a degenerative disc on MRI, which is just an MRI symptom. It doesn't, it's not a source of pain or a diagnosis that promotes any surgical cause. There's not a surgical cure for degenerative disc disease. There's not any, it's just a thing. It's just part of aging, right? So let's, let's take, first let's take that term out of just the rampant disease list. Annular tear, disc failure, herniated disc, bulging disc, neuroframinal stenosis, spinal stenosis, muscular failure, neurogenic weakness, paresthesia, all those are, are diseases that cause pain and can be associated with needing treatment. Just degenerative disc disease, if that's the only finding on your report and, that's your, and you're not even having pain, we're going to help you address how to maybe keep that from becoming a symptom someday, mm-hmm. but we're not going to adjust. Like in and of itself, you don't have to have a treatment outlined for you for just degenerative disc disease. doesn't mean I'm not going to help you try to avoid that becoming symptomatic. But I don't think in and of itself that's the, the surgical problem. I do think that once you take that disc out mm-hmm. and that <clears throat> disc starts to fail, and now you have painful failure of a disc with resultant spinal stenosis, resultant neuroframinal stenosis, inflammatory in-plate disease because of the disc failure, altered dynamics and flexibility of that disc that because the disc has failed now generates this huge inflammatory load with motion, with a cough. Like, I mean, there were times, like, I would literally have a back brace on because if I was coughing with my allergies, as you would cough my leg and hip, it would almost cause my back to give out on me. Felt right? like you got stabbed. Because of the pain. <clears throat> yeah. That is the end stages of degenerative disc disease failure that becomes a problem. And then when you talk about is fusions, right? Yeah. So, so let, let's answer that question because what I want to do is I want to talk about the standard of care. And then I want to go back to that. Wait, 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 because I got to say this while I do, because I'm going to lose the point. Yeah, no worries. But, but the way to, because what, because with the first fusion, right, we talk about the surgical cascade, discectomy, mm-hmm. maybe latent decompression later. Now we need to make the, we need to do a neuroframe and on and make the hole bigger. Well, now we need to do a fusion because now you're not having mostly leg and hip pain. You're having back pain. Disabled, like you can't, you can't get comfortable. hurts all the time. Uh, we fuse that level. Well, when you do fuse that level, because God's trying to fuse it for you, if you can wait it out, if we can get your pain under control, keep you flexible, help you lower your body weight, get your inflammatory load under control, sometimes with peptide therapy, sometimes with anti-inflammatory, sometimes with local pain management procedures, if we can help control your overall, eventually that will kind of autofuse or get stiff enough where it doesn't have much nerve intervention and it doesn't generate as much of an inflammatory response and maybe the natural process of your body fusing a lot of those on their own doesn't need surgical intervention. But if you intervene surgically, you have to disrupt that muscle mass that we're talking about. So we're going to turn filet mignon because that's that midline incision. They move that muscle out of the way, taking it away from its nerve and blood supply. And then they hold a clamp on it out of the way. So first of all, we're going to cut through part of the nerve and vessel supply to that muscle. We're going to move it out of the way. And everyone says, well, no, those muscles come from the outside and the nerve comes from the outside. That's not true because these are short one-segment muscles. And we know that a significant portion of the neurogenic and blood supply comes from midline. We can argue that. I, I, I don't I, think I, there I, is an I, argument. I don't really care about <laughs> the other person. It it's not all just the facet, the nerve coming around the outside. But when you move that muscle, now you put a clamp on it to hold it out of the way for a good hour, hour and a half 
to make sure it's good and dead, right? So I'm going to cut it away from its support. And then I'm going to hold pressure on it out of the way, just like strangle holding it, like put my foot on your throat. And so now when I take that off, is that muscle just going to oh, come back and stay normal muscle? No. Over the next several years, it deteriorates. You get fatty infiltration into it. You can't maintain flexibility. It starts getting stiff and sore. Now you have a worse or better problem. Most of the time, now you've left a big enough scar and a big enough avascular area. If you listen to any of our podcasts, you know blood supply is crucial to healing. That's one of the reasons we use cells because it causes microangiogenesis. You can get new blood supply. If you get new blood supply, you stand a chance of healing, right? Yeah. You can't get good peptides, proteins, anti-inflammatories into something unless you can get blood supply to it. So when they kill that muscle and it turns just fat, we literally call it white muscle syndrome in the clinic. Yeah. You see such profound paravertebral muscle atrophy. No wonder your back hurts. Does that disc need fused? Wow, did, did the first two surgeries help you? Because now if they fuse that disc, guess what? The disc above and below it don't look great either. And if I take the kinodynamic, the, the kinodynamic function and flexibility away from that one level, now it moves all the stress to levels above and below. Guess what happens after that? Adjacent level failure, right? And adjacent level failure is common, right? The five-year follow-up on isolated lumbar fusions is not great when you look at high success rates of avoiding further surgeries, right? There are great studies to show that your chances of having a second surgery in the first five years is almost 30%. There's, there's, there's pretty good studies to show that, excuse me, other way around. The second surgery within the first five to six years is almost over 50%, right? 50%. 50%. May that, need, because if you put a little hardware in, we have to take a little hardware out. If the disc collapses a little more, you may have to do a neuroframe anatomy. If they get a little scarring, they may herniate the other side because you've changed the kinodynamic. So they turn to one level that they only did the discectomy on the right because you only had right leg pain. Within the next five to six years, now you start having some left leg pain because as that disc settled, there's not enough room. You already had disc space failure. Now they'll do the neuroframe anatomy on the left. Yeah. So now you've had a bilateral neuroframe anatomies and discectomy. Yeah. Half so, the room was going to raise their hand if they had yes. that first one, right? Me being one of those. I didn't, mine didn't even take five years. I had five surgeries in a three-year period. I may not have been the best patient in the world. But I may have not really taken some time off and maintained flexibility and did all the therapy and all that, which I would tell patients to do. But when you take that away, now... That's, that's over 50% of those patients in the first five to six years, right? And they'll be, oh, well, this study didn't. Okay, look, there's, is there a significant risk of a second surgery after a first? Yes. Regardless of which paper you look at, statistically, yes. Especially on the, depending on the age of the patient, overall health and wellness depends on the time frame. But is, are you at more risk of failure when you denervate part of that muscle and take part of that disc out? Are you at more risk of failure than the patients that were able to be treated non-surgically? Yes. Right? Quite literally kicking the can, each yes. procedure. So now, after the first procedure, you're at a pretty significant risk of having the second. But there's about a third of those patients that have had two. So your one surgery, so when people talk about how do I avoid one, how do I avoid surgery? Look, how do I avoid you entering the surgical cascade yeah. of maybe, likely, depending on your lifespan, Two to three, and your activity level, and your body health, right? There's a lot, again, we think, we think overall issues, 
especially in the lumbar and cervical spine, are very multifactorial, right? But a discogram that shows all that leak, treated, it drove me crazy. I would, as a resident, you would have a needle right where the problem was. Got a you positive prove, discogram. I, they, I, I just <laughs> proved that's what hurts. Like the yeah. patient literally, it wasn't uncommon. You put down a disc and patients would go, oh my God, that's exactly my pain. Okay, thanks. <laughs> well, now what? Yeah. I'm supposed to pull that needle. Yes. And, and send you for the CAT scan to, sh- to prove what we just looked at under C-arm so that someone can fuse you? Man, it, there should be something that I could do when I have a needle right there showing what caused your, that was provocative for your pain response. Yeah. There, it, it made a lot of sense to me. There should be something I can inject in there that would be therapeutic. Just switch the syringe out, put it right there in the needle. Sure would have made sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. But steroids and local are bad idea in Correct. the disc because it causes infection, disc failure. Steroids are catabolic. If you inject it around a nerve or just in a joint for just overall inflammatory relief, maybe sometimes okay. In a disc, really bad idea. No one should ever do that. Tragic consequences. Why? Because it can get infected. It, 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 it doesn't... It may increase the degenerative response. It can cause a lot of, of osteopenia and bony failure, right? So steroids do not help bone density. Corticosteroids hurt bone density, period, right? Now, limited amount for some sustainable relief. I'm, I'm okay with, with some trials and stuff, not interdiscal. Around a nerve root, transforaminal, to help diet, especially prognostically and help diagnose a problem. I think there's a very valuable tool as long as you, as you don't think that's your treatment. I, I, so now we've taken a degenerative disc or some leg and hip pain that we've turned into five back surgeries down the road with no muscle mass to support you. That's the patient we get stuck with. If there was a way while that needle's in there to just stick something that the body would need to lower the inflammatory load and maybe help provoke your body's innate response to want to heal that, that it just can't do a very good job in because who has these problems? 20 year olds? No. No. Right. People that don't have great blood supply to the lumbar spine anymore. People that don't have, have a little bit of sludging. People that have a little bit overall inflammatory failure. People have a little bit more systemic dysfunction. So your body can't mount a great response to heal. But if we take the biologics, and I inject biologics that are responsible for initiating some of that healing process into that needle while it's there. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it's made a lot of sense to me since I was a resident, proving that that's what caused people's pain was the annular tear. That's the painful part of the degenerative disc. Just sticking a needle in a degenerative disc and sticking some dye in it and people don't hurt and it doesn't leak and doesn't, does that mean I think that that's where all their pain's coming from? It looks bad on MRI. It's all black. Probably not. Right. Yeah. But now inflammatory change, that high intensity signal that some of the guys on the internet goes, even when it heals, it, it can still look there. Mm. If it heals, it can look like scar, but it doesn't have that same bright, high intensity signal that an annular tear does. And that is usually a sign of inflammatory load and fluid and the nerve associated with that. If on physical exam and a lot of questioning, if that's where the pain, if your symptom on MRI and your discogram meet up with your clinical exam, I think we helped delineate at least one of the primary sources of your pain and discomfort. In the cervical spine, 
Is there a safe way to do discograms? No. Is it a great outpatient procedure service? No. Do I even think that degenerative disc disease is the great majority of cause of, of cervical spine pain? No. I think the facet disease is. I think the neuroforaminal scarring is. I think the inflammatory load around the degenerative disc is. And how do we know that now? Because in our clinic, for a very long time, just with the cervical epidural, with biologics, where you put this little catheter up around the levels that are all scarred in causing pain based on the patient's symptoms and their MRI fi findings <clears throat> and their flexibility and their plain films and what we call a poor man's MRI, mm -hmm. the lateral C-spine and a flexion extension in the C-spine. I think I can usually delineate where I think your sources of pain are. So when we do a cervical epidural with biologics and a high volume, we're breaking loose some of that. And we use that example all the time with a scarred in balloon, right? If you have this balloon, it's all scarred in the back of your car because it didn't have air in it and it's Texas in the summer. The best way to break all that loose would be to blow in it, right? And be, mm -hmm. Now, you can't just blow in it right away. It'll pop. But if you blow slowly and kind of break everything loose, maybe you can massage that balloon back to its original size. I think that's crucial to lower the inflammatory load around a scarred in or inflamed. Inflammation is sticky and it's avascular and it's destructive and it's very difficult for your body to get it to go away and, and, and wash that out. So we help it. I'm gonna promote the body's ability to wash that out by putting biologics, usually a combination of your bone marrow and a postnatal tissue graft. And no local, no steroid, because why? Let's go through this one more time. Local and steroids kill all the cellular contents and destroy yeah. the proteins. They're catabolic. They destroy and unwind the peptides and proteins that we're trying to help lower your inflammatory load. And the response from patients after the cervical epidural is phenomenal. There's it's, very few it's, procedures it's been where very gratifying. that day you can see a, a noticeable difference including in the case of my wife you know we we did hers three months ago and and again i've told you a million times but it, it blew my mind you know we're sitting there having dinner and she turns to her right like this and she hadn't done that in two years because of the stiffness in her neck but the same day of the procedure because of breaking up you know part because we put tissue. dye in there right yeah. so it's not like i'm just doing something blind yeah. when we put the catheter up we do a dye study when you put dye in there, you see this. We literally can watch like three or four nerve roots slide up. Yeah. We can see the pattern. And the average pain management guy will use one to two cc's of volume because they're really worried about where they're at and they just want to treat some of the inflammatory load. We're not using one to two cc's of volume. But I'm also not using corticosteroid or a local anesthetic that I know can cause a problem. I'm using a biologic that would treat the problem caused by a steroid, you know, a lot of steroid injections, um, epidurals, transforaminal, can cause a, a tear, a dural tear, causes a leak, it's really painful. Then you have to come back and put a blood patch. You get a bad spinal headache, you do a blood patch. What's way better than just taking blood and putting it around there? Bone marrow. So when you use bone marrow aspirate concentrate and you're sticking around an inflamed dura. It's a built-in patch. Yeah. That's perfect. And so you're literally potentially treating anything that would have been a comic complication of the procedure anyway yeah that makes a lot of sense right it does make a lot of sense yeah. but the fact that no one discusses inflammatory disease of the cervical spine that way drives me a little crazy right so who was the one of the first cervical epidurals we ever did me yeah because i have i had two cervical spine surgeries i had failure six seven dramatic triceps pain to the point i still have about a 20 percent weakness in my tricep I had a more profound loss of my triceps before I decided to have surgery. 
It was the the musculoskeletal weakness, maybe a surgical half, one of those, you need to do something. Now, here's the problem with that. Did it cure me? Did I need another surgery later? Yeah. Does my MRI still look terrible? Yeah. Are there times (laughs) where I will do too much, I will lift something heavy, I will flying kills me? that I may have to do some local treatments. Yes, I th- there's a couple devices we use for traction. There's some anti-inflammatories I'll make sure I take. There's some different stretches. There's one that'll bullfrog stretch. We need to do a whole cervical episode at one point <laughs> oh, because man. we need to treat people the bullfrog stretch, mm-hmm. cervical extension exercises. We need to teach them about some of the home traction devices. We need to teach them about some of the, uh, the, the systemic maybe maybe homeopathic ways to treat your inflammatory load. I think we could do a whole episode on that and, 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 and get a lot of people's cervical spine pain under control. But couldn't with mine. And it got to the point where I was hurting a lot. Mm-hmm. I'd been doing all that. I did all the training. And I'm ready for another epidural steroid. Instead, talked a, 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 a friend and, and, and another surgeon and just putting a catheter in my neck who felt very uncomfortable with the biologics. So at the time, I pulled all my own biologics up into the syringe, did this under local, where I could watch the fluoro. Now, I would not recommend no. doing this. But again, I'm a little bit of a control person when it comes to all the small things. We're not baking. We always laugh because I say, I, my statement in the hour is we're not baking bread back there, right? Like, you can't just throw out the bad loaf and start over. So you have to focus. Little things are important. So I pull up all the biologics in a 6cc syringe. And the doctor putting the cervical catheter in is not happy. About 6 cc's of volume going in that catheter. That's about three times what he's used to. I have my PA in there. I'm laying on the table. I watch the die, and the pain was profound. And you have to hold still. Oh, yeah. And, And I'm trying to get in a position where I can see the C arm picture. And, and, and he's got me draped out, so he kind of forgets I'm awake. And as he puts the dye in, I was like, whoo. And he goes, holy, do you want me to put you to sleep? Like, do you need, does that hurt? I'm like, man, it feels like an elephant stepping on my back of my arm. That is definitely the level of pain, right? Concordant pain when you inject around the nerve. The dye study was obscenely positive. And because I hadn't put the catheter above that, in a very slow, methodical way to wash the dye pattern out, not disruptive to tear. We flushed that level with enough biologics to wash away a lot of the scarring and inflammatory load and set into motion the appropriate breakdown of the cytokine cycle and the inflammatory load. And I did really, really well, very, very quickly. Looking at my MRI before that procedure, I was significantly concerned I needed a two-level fusion. I've not had a fusion. Still don't have a fusion. And that procedure made, gave me about three to four years of relief before I got a little older, a little bit more collapse, and did exactly the same thing again about two years ago. So... And this As is pre some, weight loss, though. Oh, yeah, this is this is a metabolic mess too. Yeah. Like my my C reactive protein was like one twenty something. Like the, supposed to be under one. Like I my IGF one level was like I had no insulin. I I was about as insulin resistant. My testosterone level was one ninety. 
my C-reactor protein was off. Like I was a metabolic mass. You weren't helping things. I was not yeah. trying to help myself <laughs> at all because that's not where my secondary gain comes from. Like yeah. my self-esteem comes from making a difference for other people. Fair. Like I think that I think that it did take a significant metabolic failure, the death of my mom, my daughter turning 10, me turning 60. It took all that at one time to make me look in the mirror and go, hey, you know, dude, like, You've been saying you're going to get around to it. You have Now's the time. Right? Like, you've been just, because I had access to the best patch for the boat in the world, I could just pull some cells out of the freezer, stick them where it hurt. I did just well enough to limp along and ignore it for a little longer yeah. until everything else could go wrong too. Right? And that's part of it, right? Because I was in survival mode. And really just kept thinking, I wasn't going to stick around that long anyway. So why go to some giant remaking my, like I didn't think it had much to do with my overall problem. Now, I help other people do this all the time. Mm -hmm. And we have every cool toy in the world. After that second cervical epidural, oddly around two years ago, um, it may have been around that time, experienced a tremendous amount of pain, really inflammatory loads, that after we did that, I started taking this seriously, got my hormone function normal, testosterone supplementation, drop 100 pounds, fix my insulin resistance, be on inflammatory peptides in the morning that make me feel great, um, treat the hair with a little GHKCU, maybe do some of the collagen injections, not with collagen, but with peptide, with GHKCU. Um, went on a little melanotan too, a little kispeptin. Like I have about 10 go-to peptides in my fridge, which my daughter for Christmas bought me my own little fridge for the bedroom because she wants my <laughs> peptides out of the refrigerator. <laughs> Smart. Um, Love it. So now I have a peptide fridge. Um, now that you're talking about that, though, so I do want you to touch on uh, real quick, what are realistic steps that patients could be taking to avoid these more significant risk of degenerative disc disease, which Man. are all the other lists of annular tears, herniated disc. Like, what are simple steps now to avoid that from potentially happening since DDD is already inevitable? Flexibility. Okay. Crucial. Okay. Right. Um, I think, and you know, and, and, and this is from a, um, gosh, I won't give him a, a shout out because I don't know if he'd appreciate it or not, but um, there was a point where, um, I'd given a lecture in uh, Vienna, and they have a big dinner afterwards, and I think it's still on the internet, and I said, oh, I look terrible or not. Uh, it was like from 2014. And the whole dinner, people are coming asking for the guys next to me, so just saying hi to him, stuff. I have no idea who the guy is. But he just hammered me with stem cell questions the entire dinner. And finally, I figured, you know, he, he introduces himself, I'm like, oh, I don't know who you are, right? And so, and he's a, a guru in the fitness industry, and I was like, okay, I got a question for you. Like, you've been hammering me with questions all night. He goes, no, shoot, man. I guess, God, this has been a great conversation. This is a little outside of my bailiwick, you know, and I'm really happy. I said, okay, so you're 50. So this is right. Yeah. So I said, you know, you're 50. You're old, out of shape athlete. You're kind of metabolically broken. I'm never going to be an athlete again. But if you have to pick one exercise, what's the best bang for my buck? And shockingly, because at 50, as a kid that was raised in uh, Oklahoma without a lot of resources, I had never even really heard the term yoga, <laughs> right? Yeah. I thought yoga was for 
Hippie nomads. Yeah, I mean, I thought, <laughs> you walk around with your mat and you have your green tea and you burn incense and you connect with, you know, the world or whatever, right? Um, not that I think there's a problem with connecting with the world. I think the electromagnetic and fit on the ground, I think all that's really important. How, how about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the term <laughs> yoga, I did not think was exercise. But he made the point. He goes, okay, so... And I said, yoga? I said, dude, I was a college athlete. I've been in the weight room. I've been over 300 pounds and look good at 300 pounds. Like, I, like, I don't, like, I don't, I, yoga? And he goes, there's a picture of the 80-year-old athlete, runner. Like, everyone thinks running is the best way to stay in shape. Picture of the 80-year-old runner. They're barely flexible. They can move. They're, they're stiff and sore, but, boy, they're lean. Step behind an 80-year-old woman in yoga class. They look elegant. Their motions are simple. They're flexible. They can bend forward. Their hips aren't in dystocia. They have a normal gait pattern. They have a better core. He goes, because they're flexible. He goes, if you do a yoga course, it is a workout. And I was like, man, I don't know about that. But I'll see, right? So we get back, and we go to a hot yoga course with my kids. My two daughters are so excited that their dad's going to do yoga, right? Did you have the pants? No, the no pants? I wore gym shorts and like right. certainly right. really protective underwear in your gym shorts with the poses you're going to get in and t-shirts. Fair. I just I wanted to paint the full picture. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're we go to this and, we, and my mistake was we went to a wood class, which is all core. Mm-hmm. I made it through it. It wasn't elegant. Mm-mm. It wasn't pretty. Mm-mm. But when we got in the car afterwards. I was so bent down and unable to even straighten up because my abs hurt so much Mm -hmm. that I couldn't extend. And my daughters were laughing because they said, Dad, are we leaving? I'm like, I can't even set up right yet. Like I was so sore and and so contracted abdominally from some of that workout that just maintaining those positions, and there was no plyometrics involved even. I think plyometrics and yoga together are probably a really good solution for a lot of people Mm -hmm. because flexibility and stretches is the way to maintain so I will say the hot yoga ones are typically the more aerobic Oof. ones. And if you are definitely older, I will say, because I've experienced it, but I did uh, yin yoga for a while, which is basically just focusing on breathing and specific poses. And man, let me tell you the difference in my muscles when I took deep breaths. It's like the muscle has more room to expand in. And so you're really getting the oxygen and the flow. Well, I think everyone needs to look up Wim Hof, Wim Hof breathing, by the way. <laughs> I think it's a very important part of all yeah. this, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think breathing exercises are crucial. I think everyone worth listening to in a health podcast talks about taking big, deep breaths as a, as a form of your morning routine. And I think it's crucial, mm-hmm. right? But breathing at the time mm-hmm. of exercise is probably one of the more important parts to focus on yeah. when you breathe in, when you breathe out, how long mm-hmm. you're holding it. All, all that's really all important. Right. And so last question for me, Mike, I'll let you go because I know I just cut you off. No, I apologize. Good. Um, but as for when should a patient take action and maybe coming and seeing us and as far as pain levels go, as far as maybe they did get a diagnosed degenerative disc disease, what portion of that level of symptoms should they come and try to Man, visit us? You know, it's, it's just like everything with us, right? I think it depends on what your goals are. Mm-hmm. Um, we very rarely get low-hanging fruit type of patient. We get the patient like me, 
five back surgeries in, 100 pounds overweight, metabolically broken, no paravertebral muscle mass left. Not a, and here wasn't the thing. It wasn't like I wasn't motivated. It wasn't like I could have, it wasn't like I'm not disciplined. I could have done the core. I, I tried to do core stuff, but I would have to pick between, okay, I can try this workout, but I may not be able to go to work tomorrow. Or I can make sure I go to work tomorrow. I can stretch out. I can try to get some rest. I can take the anti-inflammatories. I can get in the hot tub. I can do the sauna and I can see if I can go to work. Or I can try to do a bunch of abdominal strengthening exercises, work on my glute, get my back safe, and maybe not be able to get out of bed. So instead of doing that, if the earlier you see us, especially, look, if you've had enough pain to have an MRI. Or even have surgery. <laughs> or, or most of them have already had surgery. <laughs> yeah. And the reason, look, here's, the, here's, the, here's how the science has even got it. Here's how our clinic exists. If what Western medicine was doing for back pain worked on everybody, they wouldn't need us. Right? So when a surgeon says, well, we need to do another surgery, you already did one. Like, could you not have predicted what was going to happen when you did that? Yeah, because we know there's great literature to show what happens when you do that first one. Not everyone does great. So tilt the favor. Tilt, how, how, did you do everything to tilt the scale in my favor before you did that? Maybe not, right? So why just do that again without trying some of the things that could maybe tilt the scale in my favor enough to not have another surgical procedure that didn't really help me that much the first time or left me so scarred in that even though some of my leg pain went away, Man, now my back pain's worse than it was before I even had the surgery, which is what happened with me. Which is what happens with most people. You turn leg and hip pain into back pain over a period of years because you disrupted the disc more. Yeah. And it scars in, right? So I think that depending on where your goal is, depending on where you're at, because it may be as easy as we help you with some weight loss, get your hormone under control. I get into Dr. Phillips, we do some lab panels, figure out where you're metabolically broken, lower your inflammatory threshold, get you on something. And doing the right exercises, teach you some of the right stretches, you may do great without me, for sure. Mm. I think the standard of care in most forms of medicine mm. needs to be physiologic re-education uh, and managing you systemically so and, you can and giving you a chance to heal. Never be too early to come to us because we will have yeah. options to further prevent what could potentially happen. Now, are most of the patients we get like that? No. Walking like that? <laughs> no, I wish. It'd be great. We could help you sooner. Like, that oh, would be awesome. Gosh, see, there are a couple people lately that we've gotten that were like almost like fresh annular tears. Mm -hmm. Like, I was doing great six months ago, and now I can't really twist. Man, in the morning it hurts. And you look at their MRI, and they have a, an annular tear, and the facets aren't worn out. There's no spinal stenosis. You're like, and you're just like, Low hanging fruit. The needle goes right in. There's nothing for it to yeah. Like I can get Mike's been there when you do the disc grip. And I'll be trying to get around three spurs, the around diffusion site into the disc. And some of these lately, you get the needle right in and you put the dye in and it leaks right out to the back of the canal. And you know that that's the problem. And you fill it with cells, you pull the needle out, you do an epidural around it just to make sure there's no posterior scarring around the nerve root. Patients wake up, I feel a little stiff and sore. Within the first six, eight weeks, like, oh my gosh, this is feeling so much better. My back pain's gone. You do an MRI six months, there's no annular tear, and you're just like. Yeah, lately it's been nice, but I can always tell, and this is this is a little inside information. I can always tell where we're at in terms of a procedure and how difficult it is by how hard you're biting your lower lip. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but we we stand across from each other. I, I help out in there. But you get this progressive change in your bottom lip as the procedure gets harder. And I can tell a lot of it you have to do by feel. And I go much more by feel. Yeah. Like, and, and I can always tell. When you get that needle, because the, the C-arm shows them where I'm at, 
and it ain't going. No. And, you know, we're trying to angle the C-arm to get the level of the claps because a lot of these discs are claps 20, 30 degrees already before we're doing a discogram. And you get that 30-degree claps, and because it's on to the right side, and that's where you got to go with the discogram, and I'm trying to get around a big spur and a secondary fusion site and work either in front or behind where it's most guarded in. And I literally, you, you can feel it, even though I'm feeling it through an eight-inch long needle. You're feeling it, and you almost have to kind of walk it up, kind of walk it up and kind of slide it in. And I know that I kind of, you stop, you know, once I get where I'm C-arm, I'll kind of just feel and kind of feel side. And then you look at the C-arm, you're like, picture, die, right? But yeah, I mean, we may it, just have to bring the cameras into the OR one day. So man, that's entertaining. Like, <laughs> it's I, entertaining. I can always tell like, how long I got to linger with that picture. If I need mm. to save this one, do this one. I can always tell right where I'm at just by the facial expression of cues <laughs> because a lot of it is done by feel. And mm. it's because he's been there before. Mm. And that's why patients. Oh, yeah. we, look, this is not this is not a procedure. I want someone I wouldn't want to be someone's first. No, uh -uh. Right? no. Uh -uh. Which is why a lot of guys yeah. inject the neck. Right, mm. Let, let's. I'm not yeah. poking the bear this late or, in the show, or the but, lumbar. You know, the people say, "Oh, I, I had my back injected," and they literally just injected your back. Like, yeah. okay, maybe they threw a dart. Boy, they surely didn't make it easy for the biologics to get where they were needed. Yeah, right. They put it closer, right? But mm, closer is not always close. Doesn't always count, and it doesn't address right? the scar tissue. No, it certainly doesn't break apart right. acutely the scar, and it doesn't help promote the the dramatic relief you can get from that inflammatory load very quickly to promote healing. Yeah. So look through your questions real hey, quick. Listen, we'll we've, handle, we've so covered we degenerative, uh, hold on, degenerative disc disease, which we have covered it. And I nailed it on that last one. I did we not did. pull a mic. Uh, listen, we've oh, talked about this. A mic. <laughs> yes. We have talked about the stages of it. We've talked about alternatives and standards of care. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the check boxes, essentially that patients walking into a door that present with DDD uh, on an MRI. We've talked about the importance of annular tears and, and having a radiologist that's willing to diagnose it for the provider, right? That's something that, that's Parentibal one of muscle atrophy, needs. white muscle syndrome, looking yes. for scarring, neuroforaminal inflammatory loads, the annular tear, the high, high intense signal, the annular tear portion of this. Disrupted disc, disc failure, in-plate edema. There's a lot more to talk about than just degenerative disc disease. But the the because they don't pay you more for doing it right, yeah. People will just say degenerative disc disease, and that just means you have some or black disc phenomena, right? What it means it's just desiccating, it's just drying out. That does not mean it's the source of your pain. No. And in fairness to a lot of providers out there, sometimes they're, they're, it is. They're operating out of what they've been given. Right. For sure. they're, they're not a guy that's just looking at your report has he's at a really unfair disadvantage and he's yes. roped into a, a to a, a treatment protocol or a, you know I think of everything as a flowchart mm -hmm. and he's roped into some flowchart starting or ending in a place where he didn't have control over because he's just going by a report we don't do that you got to remember at my age group I was around when MRI began being used in management of a surgical patient. Mm -hmm. So, and that was when it was film. And we would have all these view boxes in the room and we would take all your films and hang them on the view boxes. So if we were sticking a scope in a knee or a shoulder or um, doing the discectomy, you would go back to the MRI and then look at what you were seeing grossly. And so I think that the MRI comparative anatomy and physiology of disease between hands-on person 
doing the work and having access to the films at that time, a surgeon in a certain age group that's used to actually looking at his own films to aid in the diagnosis and can go from, oh, what does that look like in scope and go back and look at that film and go, wow, so that's what that looks like and that's pathologic, it's inflamed. I think you have a much better handle on being able to delineate outside of a report with a review of films and they need to be good quality films and we see some MRIs mm -hmm. that are Awful. Glamour shots. Right? <laughs> well, right? It's like when you go to the mall back in the day and you would do yes. your hair and everything's a your little Macy's fuzzy. Head it's like your social media pose <laughs> after 50, right? Where you got to get rid of some of the, like the if camera you, angles. Like, top if, down. The camera, like if you ever you got to blur some of the yeah. lines. Have you ever looked at, have you ever got an Airbnb or hotel room and you're trying to figure, because you saw the picture online, you're like, that's a great room. And you're trying to figure out where did they take that picture from? <laughs> and the only place they could have got is like the top corner above the door. With a fish eye, like it doesn't look like it does when you look at it. Yeah, a lot of MRIs are that way too. So mm. you know there are some important part of the diagnostic thing. Yeah. You need to be getting a high quality MRI. You need to be mm. getting one that does a stir sequence, right? These are questions to ask your surgeon. Like when you order an MRI, are they going to do a stir sweep sequence? <laughs> I pulled a mic. Oh. On a, uh, <laughs> That's on not a, sticking. On, on a sagittal and a coronal view. Yeah, and right? which is. You can totally ask. I think patients get nervous they on asking four, and requesting. Four sequence MRI is yeah. not of the lumbar spine. That is not diagnostic. That's not going to tell you anything. You know, well, they, they charge exactly the same for the four sequence MRIs. They do a six or seven sequence MRI. It's just way less helpful and way less diagnostic. Yeah. I, I think it boils down to trust but verify, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people see a report. They they see the causation on the report. They react to that report. With you, you look at the report, you think, okay, that's good data to have, but you're going to verify it, right? You're going to do it with a positive discogram. Yeah. You're going to do it with a response from the physical patient. Physical exam. Physical exam, Maybe some right? Films. You're going to see them moving around. You do a lot of standing x-rays. You do a, a lot history. of weight bearing. Like, just yes. ask, where do you hurt? Like, I'm amazed at how many patients we see that have never even been asked, when do you hurt? How much do you hurt? What can you do about it? Is there anything you do that makes it better or makes it worse? What does it stop you from doing? And is it bother you enough to treat? Yeah. A lot of people have never even been asked that one little series of questions is kind of crucial in what in the decision make. Where are we at in the paradigm of treatment? Yeah. I know and I know our goal was to talk about degenerative disc disease on a on like a fifth grade level today, and we did not. Um but I do think that what we're trying to do is give people a resource if you have been given that diagnosis or if you're having back pain in the great majority of the country at some it's one of the greatest costs of the healthcare system is back pain and as evidenced by the fact that a lot of the self-insured insurance companies are starting to pay for cells injected into the discs because it's way less look if we have to compare our treatment to traditional surgery people are like, oh well insurance doesn't cover cells in the disc if you're paying for it a one level fusion is somewhere north of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars an intervertebral disc injection is quarter mild six figures yeah right like 500 5000 yeah. bucks maybe right like with cells bone marrow amnion anesthesia we're doing one little level compare that to a 150,000 dollar procedure that oh, you may have way, to pay for again oh that your one surgery <laughs> becomes two becomes mm. three right we don't have a lot of interdiscal injections. Mm -hmm. Actually, just statistically, I think it's 87% of five years have still had nothing else done. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Not to mention the fact that we have a lot of patients that can't take that much time off. Yeah. First, well, yeah, time off work. 
I'm off. Like, how much time do I need to take off work for this injection? Am I going to hurt a lot worse? Am I at a higher risk of infection? Do I have an open wound? Do I have stitches? Do I have to worry about wound care? Can I be as mobile or active? All the answers to those questions are whatever you were doing before, you can do pretty much within the first few days after. Mm -hmm. Is there a significant downtime recovery? No. Does that mean your disc kills right away? No. It's a, it's, the disc doesn't even start to heal, get rid of the inflammatory responses earlier. But really, remodeling of the tissue and actual healing starts around week 6A. It takes a while for proteins to line up. And really goes on to about week 16 to 20, kind of what you have at about week 20, 24 on MRI is what you're going to have. But that first six, eight weeks, we're not going to see a bunch of change on MR. You may see a bunch of change symptomatically. But we're not going to see MRI changes. It was pretty profound, the difference in, in, in 12 weeks to 16 weeks when we were doing MRIs of everyone a decade ago, right? Um, because we need to do a lot of post-op films now because a lot of it comes out of patient's pocket. There's no reason to do it if you're not hurting. But if you feel better and you feel great, let's slowly increase your level of activity until we get you where you're happy and go from there. Um, so I don't think, I think when you compare downtime, cost, complication of further surgery. Oh, just the frustration and stress even of having to work with disabilities. If that's oh. something you have to go into, like you're in pain trying to recover and also getting a mental headache, trying to go through all of the hoops of oh, insurance and, and disability paperwork hey, and getting paid. About, let's talk about the incidence of stress and increasing your back pain. Profound, Profound right? Yeah. So, and, and, and how are you not stressed when your back hurts? And mm -hmm. the amount of stress you're under from not being able to work, not being able to make a living, not work as long as hours, that stress makes your back pain worse. The, the incidence of smoking, like one of the first things we got to do with back pain patients is get them off of cigarettes or nicotine products because smoking is associated with the much higher incidence of failure of your back to be able to heal, mm -hmm. right? So if you're a smoker with back pain and asking me, what can I do about it? Hey, I, one of the first things you can do about it, stop smoking, yeah. right? That's that, that you want to talk about an easy non-invasive mm. treatment. Like there's a really good. Oh, by the way, after that stretch and no stretch, you don't have to do a yoga class. Sit in the seat, put your back against the wall, walk your hands down your legs until you're bent all the way over. Start at your neck. Like there's some really easy stretches. We, we work hard on giving. I literally have a little sheet of stretches we give to patients. Mm. There are a lot of easy ways to get yourself out of crisis and then then stand a chance of getting in better shape. And maybe you don't need any of this. Well, I think we've hit our list yes. in full. Um, I, I think we've talked a lot about the importance of intermediate steps, right? Don't go to the extreme. Don't start that catalytic effect of, hey, here's the first knife, right? Let's yeah. let's offer the needle over the knife or even just therapy and stretching over the knife. Yeah. Let's fix the metabolic chain. Let's address your weight, your health, your smoking, other factors before we get into something as invasive as this. I am very much image centered you know i'm very most guys are very visual anyway but um i i literally look at back pain like those waterfalls where it just it's like dunn's river like yeah. I, jamaica's one of my favorite countries in the world for a long time you know we would visit there a lot and people just i called myself a jamaican um but i think of dunn's river falls you know it's just a series of waterfalls that's kind of what, what back surgery look, in my mind. That's exactly the picture that comes to my mind is you have this first surgery, then there's a lipid pull for a while, then there's another failure. And every time you get lower and lower and it's a little less options, um, it's harder to walk all the way up. 
once you get all the way down, right? It's and I was viewing to, it as a surgical snowball because yeah. I have a very picture mind too, a ah. surgical snowball because it just keeps getting bigger and bigger yeah. of a problem as it and keeps going down. It's not like the <laughs> surgery options get less invasive yeah. as no, you go down the hill. They, right? they use up the they use up your less invasive surgeries at the beginning, yeah. and yeah. everything you have done is a leaves a bigger mm-hmm. wake, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and you destroy more and more tissue, and we're having to pick up more and more pieces. If we get involved earlier and you can pull yourself out of that surgical cascade sometimes, it certainly makes treatments way less invasive and and way easier for the patient. Awesome. Well, we hope that this was a great resource to answer some of your questions that you may have related to back pain and if you've been given the degenerative disc disease diagnosis. Um, I encourage you to go into our description and look for further details if you have any questions about any of the biologics products that we mentioned, bone marrow aspirate, postnatal tissue. We have great episodes that explain all of those processes if you're interested. And then please like, subscribe, comment, and we will see you guys next time. I'll let Dr. McKenna also do his regular sign-off. Yeah, and I know I know that this is if you've watched the episodes at the end you're probably just clicking off it now but I can't I can't tell you how how heartfelt this is in that I want to make sure I always thank people for their trust and I think that the ability to be able to take care of a patient is is very sacred to me. I genuinely look at myself as because when a patient's asleep they're at the mercy of everyone in the room. And so I've always pictured the surgeon-patient relationship as almost very medieval knight-like. I, you know, I, I use the phrase of I'm standing by the patient's bed with a sword ready to smote anyone who comes in contact to hurt you. And I look at that in a very um, sacred way because of your trust and to put yourself in our hands and your care when you're not doing your best means a lot to us. And, and the reason for this podcast is to give you some of the educational resources and tools to understand why it is we do what we do and kind of what our approach is. So again, I want to just humbly say thank you um, for your support and trust. And if you made it to this part of the episode, a, a genuine thank you. Looking up anything we talked about with stem cells, we we tried to address a lot of the the, the use of that term early in our podcast. We, we, there's whole episodes on peptide therapy. There's whole episode on hormone control. So I think that we may not have covered every little bit of it because it's very difficult, um, but we should have a resource to kind of further educate you on anything we discussed today. All righty. See you next time, guys. Thank you.